Hey everybody, thanks a million for tuning in to episode 10 of the Dan Kell Wellness Project podcast. This is Dan here. I am a counsellor and psychotherapist in training in Dublin Business School. I am also a project worker with Focus Ireland and we provide support to families and individuals experiencing homelessness all around the country of Ireland. I've been on my own wellness path for quite a long time now and my whole idea for setting up this podcast was that I would talk to people couple of times a week and just find out what it is that they do to increase their wellness and that you guys who are listening will take away something that will help you improve yours so i'm delighted to announce on this week's episode it is the wonderful erin Lorovic. she was on episode two and it was so well received that we had to get her back on erin is an entrepreneur and mother of three she's the founder and creator of Depth through erinlorovic.com And she provides personal coaching and development for men and women who seek meaning and self-acceptance. And she specialises in disordered eating and behavioural addiction recovery. So I just wanted you to sit back, relax and really enjoy the conversation that we had over the next hour or so. If you're driving, drive safely and uh, you guys enjoy it too. So thanks again for tuning in and on with the show. Hey Erin, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I just want to give you a big massive welcome to your second episode of the Dankyo Wellness Project podcast. Woo! You are the inaugural second person. Oh, thank you for that. I, I appreciate is, it. Is that like an oxymoron? Inaugural second? No. Kind of? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Okay. I, I come do. in second place. I, I do. Their seconds are important. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for, I know how busy you are and, Thank you so much for coming back on. We had a huge response to our first uh, episode. It was episode number two in the series. Mm-hmm. And um, lots of people came back and said that they really enjoyed finding out how we met. And that they picked out lots of little quotes from that episode um, that really impacted them. So it's really nice to kind of feel that we did have some sort of reach on the message mm-hmm. that we were trying to get out, you know? Yeah, it's very humbling. Thank you, everybody who listened. Yeah. That's pretty great. So today we have a bit of a doozy of a subject, don't we? Yes, we do. Um, we today are going to bring the focus right in, and we're going to talk about addiction and disordered eating. And don't worry, listeners, this may sound daunting if you were just driving out of your driveway getting set to have a big old laugh with me and Erin we're still going to make it light we're still going to enjoy our conversation we're but we are going to get real and we're going to get talk about something today that really does impact millions of people Mm -hmm. across the world so Mm um I'm just going to read out to the listeners what you sent to me when we did decide um to do this subject which does impact okay. so many people and their wellness, obviously. Um, okay. And then we'll take it from there, yeah? Yep, sounds good. Okay. The realization I've had most recently that has helped t- to overcome addictive behaviors is that we often focus on the substance of our addiction, not on, in inverted commas, being an addict itself. When we focus on the substance we abuse, we're missing the problem. It's like trying to stop the bleeding from a bullet hole with band-aids instead of performing the necessary surgery to fix the wound. To Mm. overcome addiction, especially when the addiction centers around a necessary substance, like food, we have to deal with our compulsion and addictive urges themselves, and not the food. 
We can't control right. the food, only our bodies and our mental, emotional space. So, Correct. yeah, I fell off my chair when I read that one. <laughs> well, I kind of did just now when you read it back to me. <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. Yeah, it is. So we're saying that the substance is not the problem. It's, it's our mindset around the substance that's the problem. I would even say our mindset that the substance is stacked on top of because I don't think that I don't think it really has anything to do with how we interact with the substance we're abusing mm. it has everything to do with the way our the mental state that we're in when we approach the substance that we're abusing yeah I was an addict well before I found anything to abuse. You know, they have scientific research has proven time and time again, they've identified uh, addictive genes. They've identified the genetic mapping that indicates whether or not someone is going to be a hoarder or a drug addict or um, so it, it obviously we are predisposed at, at worst, we're predisposed. At best? Uh, well, I would say, okay, I suppose you could say it that way. I just want to make sure that, that before we go into any of this, that we understand that I don't care what you are. Choices and actions can overcome any predisposition. Yes. I think that's a so, crucial point that we need to, before we set it out into this discussion, is that um, just because Aaron is positing here and backed up by all the evidence that people are genetically predisposed to becoming addicts, we're not right. saying that that means that you are doomed. Exactly. And this woman exactly. who I am talking to right now and the man she is talking to are proof that... Right even though we both, and we do have, both have addictive personalities, um, we are overcoming them one day at a time. Right, right. We learn to cope. We learn to deal with our compulsions and the emotional and mental stimulus that pushes us. Hmm. Seemingly, we're powerless. It pushes us into certain behaviors, but I really think you know, to the quote that you read, us learning how to deal with ourselves is, is where the solution lies. Because if you are, if you are truly disposed to addiction, you can not overeat and not drink alcohol and still find something to abuse. The mm. perfect example of this is uh, people who have behavioral addictions and abuse food on a regular basis and then decide to switch their addiction from food to exercise and then they get in really great shape yeah and they exercise all the time um deep down inside they're still addicts they've just switched their switched their focus mm -hmm. i mean and and i I think that, you know, as we get into this a little bit, we'll talk a little bit about that because um, when you're truly an addict and you're really, you are prone to abuse something, 
it is our responsibility as addicts to make sure that what we are abusing is something that's creating a productive outcome in our lives. It's not something that's going to wreck us hum- as humans mm. or destroy our relationships or destroy the people that we're with. Um, so, yeah. But I'll let you, before we get too far into it. <laughs> well, we're already in. We're already there, my friend. I'm already shaking my head going, oh, God, I've got so many questions here. I don't know where I'm going to go from here. <laughs> well, why don't we give the listeners a bit of, um, I know you did speak about it in your first episode, episode two of the Dan Kill Wellness Project podcast. Um, we really kind of glossed over the whole spectrum of your experience in relation to exercise and food and wellness. Um, why don't you give the uh, listeners a bit of background as to your experience and learning in this area? Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, well, when I was six, seven, and eight, uh, my life kind of imploded. Um, my dad was raised in a really abusive home. And when I was when I was four years old, he moved back to his hometown and he brought us with him. And for the first two years we were there, it was okay. But I'm pretty sure now in hindsight that he had a psychotic break and that being back in the same environment that he had lived in that was so abusive triggered all, you know, all that garbage came back up. Mm. So when I was six and seven, he started um, hitting us and abusing us. Um, when I was six and seven, I also, that was when the sexual abuse started, not by his hand, but by another family member. And so I was dealing with all of that. And, um, my, my mom really, I don't blame her for this. She came from a pretty quiet, well-bred, honorable Japanese family. So to deal with the violence and the anger, she kind of withdrew and she changed a lot too. So when I was seven years old, life sucked a lot. Mm. And my way of coping with that, I think that's the first time that I ever remember intentionally not eating. Mm. And when I ate, I intentionally overate. So from the age of seven, which is 32 years ago, um, my eating disorder started about that age. Yeah. I remember I was a very, very skinny child. Uh, and I have a lot of family members, especially on my mom's side of the family, where being a tiny little Japanese girl is a good thing. And they would tell me, you're really, oh, you're so skinny. You're so tiny. You're so skinny. Uh, And that became a trait that I used to define myself and define my worth. I was praised for that more than I was praised for the grades that I got. I was a 4.0 student, but nobody really said anything about that. It was always about how skinny you were and how long your legs are. And Yeah, so um, you're going to do whatever it takes to, uh, you know, keep getting that praise, right? Oh, for sure. For sure. Absolutely, yes. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, the abuse at home was kind of peaked, uh, and my mom started to gain weight. She is also a binge eater and and has her own disordered eating habits. Um, and 
I watched her gain weight. And at the same time, my dad being the ass that he was would say things like, she's so disgusting. Mm. She's so fat. I can't believe how much weight she's gained. Uh, he really reinforced that in order to be sexy and attractive and worth attention, you have to be a certain size. Now, I don't blame anybody for my choices. I know that I dove into anorexia and bulimia because it helped me to cope with what I was dealing with. Hmm. Um, regardless of what anyone else did, I know that those were my choices. It yeah. wasn't anybody else's fault that I chose that. That was just the way that I... Um, the way that I coped with it. So all the way through high school and then college, I was primarily anorexic. I didn't, I mean, being bulimic is really expensive and I was a poor college student. So anorexia was way easier. <laughs> a little dark humor there. Um, so I, I got down to about a hundred pounds in college and then, um, well, first I put on like the fresh, freshman 15 times two because I lived in sorority. And then I got down to 100 pounds because then I lived on my own and I had to cook my own groceries and I cook my own. Yeah, cook my own groceries and everything. So um, and then I, I got married when I was skinny and then our marriage kind of tanked. He has a sex addiction that did not have anything to do with me personally. Now I know that. But at the time. When a man struggles with pornography and the woman he's supposed to be committed to has body image issues, that's all that it's about. So that sounds it's, like a perfect storm. Yeah, it really was. And then we ended up getting divorced. And um, really, when I met you through Weight Loss Rebels, I had hit rock bottom. It was either therapy or rehab, one of the two. Because my life was completely out of control. Hmm. I was binging regularly. I was overeating a lot. Um, and I was living with my mother who has the same type of behavior patterns, which doesn't help. Yeah. You know, they say you're an average of the five people you spend the most time with. And when the person you spend the most time with has the same destructive patterns, hmm. expecting yourself through willpower to avoid okay. them is unfair so do you, um, do you remember the point at which you knew that it was and because we're talking about addiction today on the Don mm -hmm. Wellness Project podcast mm -hmm. do you remember the moment when you realized or did somebody have to tell you like how did you come to that realization that I was an addict yeah well I've known that I've I've known I've known that I've had addictions. I'm going to choose these words very carefully because they're important to the conversation we have afterward. I've known that I was, I've had addictions for most of my life. Mm. I've known that when I was in college, I had a really good time in college. I could drink people five, five times my weight under the table. Had to do it fast though. Cause I was going to fall asleep after. Um, so I've, uh, well, and cigarettes and pills and everything you, I've, I, I, yeah, I've had addictions and I've known that I've had addictions because, uh, 
my sister has a very easy time letting things go. She could smoke for six months and then say, I don't think I want to do this anymore. And then she'd just stop. <laughs> I don't get that because that's not how I work. So I knew it was addictions because I couldn't just stop. Yeah. Like I felt like I had to keep doing the thing and it was painful to stop. Hmm. Even um, keeping the house clean, leaving dishes in the sink, that, that I, I had, it was this obsessive compulsive anxious thing I had to do with it all the time. So I've always known that I've had addictions. Hmm. Understanding the difference between an addiction and being an addict, I didn't really completely understand until I tried to overcome disordered eating. Hmm. So just in the last year or so. But that all started when you got accepted to be a weight loss rebels ambassador through Meg Brown, yes. right? Yes, that that was really when it started. And, and, you know, for a lot of the people who are listening to your show, especially one on a topic such as this, most of those people are at the same point that we were when we first started with Meg. Yeah. Like rock bottom. Hmm. I, I admit that I have no idea how to fix this. I can't control my life. I can't control my behavior. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm listening to you guys because I want you to help me. Right, right, exactly. So I will say that when you start at that point, there is a depth of understanding that you are not quite capable of just because you're not there yet. It's not... Like if somebody had sat down with me and told me everything that you and I are going to talk about today, hmm. three years ago, I would have said in my head, oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Oh yeah, that makes sense. But it wouldn't have, like the acceptance of that fundamental truth wouldn't have happened yeah. because it was too deep for me to handle at the time. Yeah. Like you can only get so much out of it at a time and it's a process. Yeah. And I think you know, as far as overcoming addiction, that would be, that would be the, the lesson in all of this is that when we're overcoming behavioral addiction and we're overcoming compulsive overeating or anorexia, it, it has to come in phases. Right. Like you peel off a layer and then you peel off another layer and mm. you have to just keep going. And, and the, the trouble with addiction is that we get a layer deep into it and then something will trigger the addictive behavior and we're right back to where we started hmm. and we think, well, I tried once and it didn't work. You so see, we just, this is, this is why I am having the absolute time of my hairy life doing these podcasts, you know, because I'm listening to you pour your heart out right now in relation to your own experience and you're talking about peeling layers away taking your time you know taking baby steps which is exactly what i've spoken to every single guest about in relation to right. their wellness so if right. if somebody who's listening now is thinking okay yeah i want to be happier i want to be fitter i want to be insert x goal there i want to lose my addiction i want mm. I, you know i want to overcome my addiction it all starts with baby steps, all of mm -hmm. it. Building mm -hmm. a foundation. I love that analogy you just gave of peeling off a layer. 
Right. You know, because I, you know, even just talking to you now, I, I definitely haven't spoken on my page and on my journey about actually having an addiction to binging myself. You know, and it kind of, it kind of rings true to me that, and I'm, I'm imagining now, say, peeling off my layers since 2013, you know, and how many times those layers came crashing back up because I was too, oh, yeah. because I was too afraid to just keep going the way I've done it this year. Well, because when we backslide, which we always, always do, we label that as a failure in our heads mm. and we tell ourselves, well, I fucking failed again, just like I always do. No wonder it's the way it always happens. Mm. There you go. You did it again. And then we feel like we're right back down to ground zero and we haven't made any progress. When in so, fact, in fact, if you can, if, if you can imagine, you know, that you've taken 10 steps down a street, when you fail like that, you feel like you're back to step one, but you're actually just back at step eight. So right. how do, or, so how do people catch themselves in that and, position and make themselves realize they're not back at step one, they're just at step eight. It's just a matter well, of keep going. And even if you are all the way back where you started, you will never forget what the view was like 10 steps down the street. Hmm. You will never forget. You've been there. You've been right. 10 steps up the street. You know what it's like up there. Hmm. You know you got there once already. You know you can do it again. And although it's annoying and irritating as hell to have to do the same thing over and over and over again, hmm. eventually you will figure out a way to make it stick. Yeah, and I think eventually it sticks. I think we, myself and yourself, have been leaders in the hardcore hottie challenge, God, about five or six times now. And how often have we seen somebody going really well for say six weeks out of the twelve, and then they have a holiday weekend or they go to visit family or friends and. Well, for whatever reason, they don't track or they, they don't exercise for one week and then they really fall away because they don't realize that all those six weeks of um, of progress that they've made matter. Right. For some reason, we believe that we have the ability to undo time. And we don't. You spent six weeks doing it. You can't undo that. That's kind of you arrogant can't undo of us. It. it is. It's hugely arrogant. It's this thought that you know, well, and it's it's a skewed perspective to think that we can be successful for six weeks and then one day of messing up is going to undo all of that. Like, how good of a fuck up do you think you are? You're not that good. <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> Listeners, I'm laughing because Erin uh, is describing me so much over the past three years. So often I completely <laughs> overestimated my ability to fuck up all of my progress. Yes. <laughs> We do. We think we think that we're so good at messing up. We're going to make it absolutely irreparable. And if you really think about it, I can think of maybe two things in the world that you can't undo. Maybe three. And if I really wanted to go dark with it, probably more. But really, there's not a lot you can do in your life that you can't also undo later. In the so, same, if not less, amount of time that it took you to exactly. do it. Exactly. Because when you do it again the second time, you're smarter. Hmm. So when it comes to overcoming addiction and overcoming behavioral addiction specifically, and maybe we should start with that, is that okay. the, there is a difference between behavioral and chemical addiction. Okay. Tell the listeners what the difference is. 
Okay, a chemical addiction is something that alters the chemical state of your body profoundly enough that when you remove whatever substance you're putting into your system, you suffer adverse effects because of the absence of the chemical. For okay. example, if I quit drinking coffee every morning, I will get a migraine, hmm. absolutely positively. It is a minor addiction because the caffeine itself and the caffeine headaches will reverse themselves. It only takes a couple weeks at the most, I think, on average. Um, if I go three or four days without coffee, then I'm good. I went without coffee nine months at a time when I was pregnant and, well, more than that because when I was breastfeeding also. Mm. But so we, we can go without those kinds of substances. They're minimal impact. They're minimal, but they're chemical addictions. They're, our bodies are changed. Um, it is possible to become chemically addicted to uh, creatine mm. or something that's altering your physical state when you're working out because your body stops producing some of the chemicals and hormones that it would otherwise when you're taking these supplements in. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, alcohol, narcotics, barbiturates, all those can cause chemical addiction. Even more important, and this is my own personal opinion, even more important and relevant than a chemical addiction is the behavioral addiction. Addiction is a multi-layered thing. So let's say you're addicted to cigarettes. Your body becomes addicted to the nicotine itself because it's a stimulant and it I mean, I've heard people say, when I quit smoking, I want to eat all the time and because it's an appetite suppressant. Mm. Uh, and I never poop because it's also a stimulant, but so their their digestive system shuts down when they're not. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it actually does stimulate the sphincter. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> so when they, they're like, I can't, I have to have a cigarette so I can go to the bathroom. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> So you remove you remove the chemical addiction from the nicotine. You still have this behavioral addiction based on the lifestyle that you had that surrounded the cigarettes. Mm. So when you go out to a bar and you have a drink and your other hand is empty because there's no cigarette in it. Or in the morning when you sit and have your coffee and there's no smoke to look at as you're sipping your coffee in your serene, peaceful time. We, we develop these behavioral addictions around certain substances because of, and this is the important part, the emotional trigger that those things cause. It's not actually the thing, it's the emotional response that we have to the thing. Nobody's really truly addicted to sugar. Mm. Chemically speaking, they're not. Behaviorally, they are because yeah. in our heads somewhere, I mean, and I'll say this for myself about cookies. I was raised in a family that loved and rewarded with food. And I'm so glad to see you. I haven't seen you in six months. Hi, Grandma. How are you? Here is a box of cookies. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> it is a reward for me. It is. I have an emotional response to the sugar because the sugar was given to me as a treat. So and so... No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, so your emotional response was your love for your grandmother. Um, Is that acceptance. Correct? For acceptance me, particularly of, in this acceptance. Case, it was acceptance. Yeah. She accepted me and she gave me. She doesn't give treats to people she doesn't like. She really does. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, so for people yeah. listening, right? I think you've explained that very well. 
But let's take an example, and it's probably a very common for a lot of our listeners, be it that they eat too much or they don't eat enough or they exercise too much or, or, the, or the latter. What, what would be an example of an emotional response to... You mean... Okay. Sorry, go Okay. On. No, no, no. The concept that we... The, the concept is... It's this basic concept of emotional need. The theory is that every human being has a specific set of emotional needs that they have need to have filled all the time. Um, the theory was popularized by peaceful parenting. The idea is that if I figure out the emotional need of my child who's telling a lie and I fill that emotional need, the child will stop lying because he won't need to anymore. So if the kid is lying because the truth the lie feels safer than the truth, then his emotional need is for safety. So if I wrap him up in my arms and I say everything's going to be okay, then he'll just easily tell me the truth because he won't feel threatened. Mm. So now I get that. And as a parent, um, I, I have employed these practices with my own kids and it's made a difference. The trouble is we fail to extend the concept of emotional needs into adulthood. Okay. The idea is that as adults, we still have emotional needs. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing. I think probably more for men than women. Mm. It would be a cultural thing saying what you need emotionally is not relevant. But I hear that all the time. Doesn't matter how you feel, do it anyways. It absolutely fucking matters how you feel. Yeah. If every time you eat kale, you wish you were dead, stop eating kale. <laughs> like, it's not worth it. So yeah. how you feel does make a difference. And you can force yourself through the emotion, a distasteful emotion, for a long time. So if you're on a diet, I, I hate my body emotionally. And I guess maybe in, to answer your question directly, I can't speak for each individual person yeah. what emotion it is that they're looking to fill if they eat a lot or don't eat enough or exercise a lot. Because for each person, it's going to be different. Yeah. I can say that for me specifically, I wanted to be sexually attractive. Uh, I think that because of the sexual abuse that I experienced as a kid, um, I wanted to feel sexually powerful because that experience made me feel very sexually weak and inferior. Mm. So feeling sexually attractive gave me like a an edge, I guess. Mm. I had the upper hand. Mm. If a guy wanted to have sex with me, then I felt like I was more powerful. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of motivation and it depends, it depends on the person. Yeah. It depends on the person. But the idea is that if you can identify the emotional need that you are filling through a negative behavior, and then you find a more positive behavior to fill that need, then you won't, need the other thing anymore yeah. i don't need to eat a box of cookies if i understand that i'm feeling lonely or isolated instead yeah. i'm gonna go read to people at the nursing home or sit with some kids at yeah. the library or yeah so for me um you know i'm thinking a million miles an hour listening to your story here and I definitely can identify that my emotional needs when I did put on all of that weight 
over god it was over about four years was loneliness mm. you know mm -hmm. you know this is kind of a big revelation for me live on air <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's um yeah it's it's kind of hard for me to to admit that you know and so yeah i don't feel like i'm addicted now to exercise I feel like I have a really measured approach to it. I'm not killing myself. I'm making sure that I don't get injured, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Well, But. yeah, and I think that in your case specifically, and and I would say that this is true. Of, this is true of anyone. Um, this is why I have such a hard time with people who get online, on Facebook especially, and. judgy mcjudgy pants all of the pictures that they see and all of the progress that these people are making because it would be so easy it would be so easy for me to stand outside of your life and say you're a total addict you're addicted to exercise now instead of food it would be really easy to say that but that's not necessarily true because like you said there's a very measured approach to it and in this case i see your daily exercise routine And I know this because I've talked to you about it. I don't think if I just took a surface picture, I would be able to get this. But I know that your exercise routine is about a non-medicinal um, mental health alternative. It is about you learning productive discipline because you are forcing yourself to go do something that would otherwise be somewhat uncomfortable. Um, And it's about you adding 10 cents a day to a piggy bank that at the end of it, you're going to cash it out and have a body that exists in harmony with your mental self. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And to go back to my analogy earlier of taking the 10 steps down the road, I'd say I'm probably about at, say if 10 is the happiest and the wellest that I can be, I'm probably about a seven. Which for me to be able to say that to you right now is just, it makes me tear up a little bit, you know, but the most important part of what I'm doing now and is well, the most important part of what I'm doing now is my daily awareness of myself so that I don't spiral back down to the first step again. I used to do that every couple of months and go off the radar, but now the most I would slip down to is a six. tops and I haven't done it this year yet fingers crossed I'm touching all the wood here um you know it's been so impactful um but this this uh whole conversation has has my mind boggling with uh you know replacing behaviors and fulfilling emotional needs oh Well, my god okay, and it's this is this is the part I firmly believe that you are either an addict or you're not. hmm And I would say that this conversation specifically applies to people who are addicts, that I see the addict in me as this big, hairy, drooling, ugly, sharp tooth animal. And... Which, which is kind of what I looked like before I started trading. <laughs> yes. Um, Except for you were way cuter. This thing in my head is angry and fiery and hateful, and it tries to eat me up from the inside out. And I've found that I don't have to like it that it's there, but pretending that it's not there is going to make my job a hell of a lot more difficult. 
Yeah. I cannot take the same approach as someone who's not an addict when it comes to removing certain things from my life. Mm. I can't do like my sister and be like, well, just don't do it anymore. That doesn't work for me. And I know that, um, I know that what I need is an acceptance that this beast exists in me and a deep respect for it, regardless of whether or not I like it. Because I know that there are certain things that I can't do without infuriating and enraging this animal. There are also some things that I'm very good at because it exists. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, if it comes down to, I mean, when you're an addict, you're really good about creating habits for yourself. Albeit, most of the time, they're negative or they result in some sort of negative consequence. Yeah. But this obsessive, compulsive um, anxiety disorders that often fuel behavioral addiction, if we choose to use those tendencies for positive, they're amazing. I mean, you've turned, you have turned your tendencies towards addiction into daily mantra, meditation, physical activity. Podcasting. um, podcasting, spending time with people that make you better, not worse. Yeah. You know, you've turned those tendencies towards something. And when you, like I say, if, if, if a person were to look at your life from an outside perspective and be judgy about it, it would be really easy to say, well, he's still fucked up. He's still an addict. He's still, <laughs> um, but the truth is if someone were to say that to me, because I still have a slew of behaviors that that I engage in on a regular basis that I probably would do if I was air quote normal, I probably wouldn't need them. Um, there's people that would tell me that I'm fucked up and screwed up. You're absolutely right. I am, but I'm also coping. I'm coping and I'm better today than I was yesterday. And when you're an addict, that's all you can ask of yourself. Yeah. And I think, I think, no, I was going to say, Oh, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, I just think that what you're saying is so important because, again, it's another parallel with a wellness journey. It takes mm-hmm. daily consideration. And I, I don't really like using the word effort. I'm going to try and get it out of my vocabulary because the rewards mm-hmm. are so great. So I don't like using the word effort, but it takes daily consideration and addressing for, mm. from you for you to manage it. Right. You can't just take a couple of days off from this stuff. No, 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 absolutely not. You cannot. Mm. You can't. You can't. And I think that, you know, when we talk about taking 10 steps forward and then taking some steps back, the only way that you will ever fail is if you just stop moving. Mm. As long as you're always moving. You morph and change and evolve every I mean to those people who've taken because I know that a lot of the women that I work with if I ask them how many times have you ever been on a diet the number is the average number is crazy Mm -hmm. how do we do that to ourselves that many times in a row I would say that The reason that we have that many diets is because we keep thinking that the diet's going to fix us, but that's not the case. Right. Also, and I know, oh, thank God I didn't just cut across you again like I have done four times already in this podcast. (laughs) But 
it it's the quick fix element. It's the quick right. fix. Right. Right. There is no quick fix, guys, for anything. No. No. Especially especially if you are truly behaviorally addicted, you have an eating disorder. If you if you are addicted to food or you're a compulsive overeater, there is no quick fix to this. Okay. There is no switch hidden in your brain that you're going to get to flip and everything will just make sense. I think that for me, being the perfectionist that I am, that was another big realization is that, you know, I can't do this. So when we talk about when we talk about those women who start diet after diet after diet, mm. um, the the variation in the diets that you try is only relevant in that at some point, ideally, you'll find something that you can tolerate most. Yeah. Something that you enjoy doing. And I cannot tell you how many times I heard people say, find what you love to do and just do it. And then that, don't worry about anything else. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> Losing weight makes me happy. Tell me how to do that. Yeah. Quickly, um, quickly. Yes, quickly, right now. Um, but I will say that every single time we try a new diet and then we decide that it doesn't work, we challenge ourselves to not see it necessarily as a failure, but to find out we found out one more way that we're not really excited about doing this. Exactly. And that you've learned something. Now, I can say, you know, I've worked with Obar. I think he was your first podcast. Yes, he was. Um, I worked with Omar. I worked with him for a couple years now, um, both through Weight Loss Rebels and independently. He wrote a nutrition plan for me that I will say that Obar's plan is the last one that I will ever have because it it works. Yeah, likewise. For sure. Yeah. Big, big shout out to Stephen Obar. He was yeah. on episode one He's... of uh, the Dynakale Wellness Project podcast. And if you are interested in hearing the person who is available, who has the most on-point knowledge when it comes to the fitness and nutrition, go check out his page, Obar Muscle, because uh, me and Erin are lifelong subscribers. Yeah, he's amazing. Mm. Um, but when I when I first started working with Obar, even though his program is the last one I'll ever have, and I know for sure it works. And from the first time I actually committed myself to using it, it worked. I have started and stopped his program probably five times. Mm. Now, the old me would have said, you quit once, you're a loser, find something else. Yeah. The wiser and more patient me said, you know that it works. What is it about me that needs to change in order to make this program as good as it can possibly be? Yeah. Because so, really, when we're... Go ahead. So we're back to, you know, awareness, self-awareness. Right. And turning the spotlight on ourselves can be the most difficult thing to do. Absolutely, because yes. Because just like with many things in life, they're the problem. That's mm -hmm. the problem. Boing flip, well, boing flip, it, like it, it bounces off of us. But as soon as I started, and it began particularly at the start of this year when I was tasked with very deep self-analysis during my training as a counseling and psych counselor and psychotherapist, it was not until I started that training 
which was four months before I started this men- mental program or project of 366 days in a row. It mm-hmm. wasn't until I turned the spotlight on myself and was able to truly address and start owning my own shit that I was right. able to make any progress. Because everybody right. else and everyone else and everything else was the problem, not me. Right. Well, and exactly. And that's that's the whole concept of, of this addiction issue. Instead of trying to find a better Band-Aid, deal with the wound. Instead of trying to find a better program. Because I would say, and maybe this is a difference between men and women. But I would say that, um, or maybe it's an optimism-pessimism thing. But for me, it wasn't necessarily pointing fingers to to say these are where all the problems are at. I'm not the problem. Hmm. It was more about pointing outside of myself to say, this is where the answer lies instead of looking at myself to say, this is where the answer is at. Like I was looking for somebody else to give me an answer instead of finding it myself. Hmm. Cause it wasn't never really, I mean, I knew, I knew that I was a problem. I felt like a problem from the age age of six until forever. I felt like I was a problem. It was it was about finding the answer. And for some reason, and I, I blame Western society that we are trained to trust doctors and policemen more than our own um, common sense when it comes to taking care of our bodies. We're supposed to listen to everybody else as to how we're going to fix ourselves instead of listening to ourselves in our own heads yeah uh we have the solution to ourselves um we don't need somebody else to give it to us there are people like obar and meg and you for what it is you're doing here um that can draw maps for us and help us along the way provide support provide encouragement i love the i love the idea i love the mental image of just putting a hand on someone's shoulder because exactly. people like you and Amber Mickelson and Meg and Stephen and all the ambassadors and my family and friends, I my shoulders are sore because I have so many hands on them. <laughs> right. But I'm crucially aware that it is me who is walking my path now. Right. Exactly. And those people who have their and you who have your hands on my shoulder in a most loving and caring way are not to blame for any decisions I make. Right but you are responsible right. for bolstering me and making my foundation so solid that I can't right. even describe how grateful I am for you in this exact moment. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, And I think that, well, and that every human being needs that. I think maybe, you know, something that you said towards the beginning of this conversation, um, when we struggle, we were, it, you, you touched on the topic of, of it was about being an addict and and that the people listen to us because they're trying to find an answer Hmm. i think that addiction addiction is uh, the ability to heal or rather the part of addiction that holds us back is the part that's rooted in shame and isolation Hmm. and you know to what you just said uh, that you are weighed down almost and because there are so many people with hands on you supporting you and encouraging you it 
I, I feel their presence all the time. Yeah. But for a lot of people, they don't have that, not necessarily because those people aren't available to them or those resources aren't available to them, but because they're too ashamed to speak out and say, I need some help. Right. This is, Every... a, this is a really important point that I want to hit home for the listeners right now. If you are listening to my grandiose speech there where I was talking about the hands on my shoulders and if you don't feel any hands on your shoulders, there's two people talking right now on this podcast who you can reach out to. Absolutely, yes. We have the capabilities, the professional experience to just listen. It's what we do. Mm -hmm. um, please let us and all the people on our pages who are just such a wonderful support group to us, let us help you. Please don't be ashamed. If there's anything that you want to discuss, sometimes the best and most important first step is making that first contact and just saying, God, I just need a bit of help with this. I need a hand on my shoulder. Right. Right. Well, and to know that you don't have to do it by yourself. You don't have to. I think that the beast of addiction that lives inside of me, um, when I try to hide it, it wins. Mm. It, when I keep it to myself, the struggle that I have with it comes down to me versus it. Yeah. And I'm not strong enough. I am not strong enough on my own steam with my own willpower to beat it by myself. I can't do it. Me neither. And it is yeah, it is it has been such a humbling um and I I would have at one point said shameful, but it's not shameful. It's just humbling. It's a humbling thing to say, I can't control my shit sometimes. I need a little bit of help. Yeah. There's a reason why AA is set up the way it is. You get mentors, and when you feel tempted, you call your mentor and you say, hey, my sponsor. I'm calling my sponsor and saying, I need help. I want to drink really bad. Mm. And then they talk you down from the ledge, and they help you sit in that compulsion for a minute until it dies down and you can cope with it on your own steam. But this, this, this addiction, especially as women struggling with eating disorders, um, we feel like we feel like it's a shameful thing. I have to not tell people that if I had my way, I'd be in the other kitchen or in the other room in the kitchen hogging down a bag of potato chips. Well, you and, you have two kitchens. God, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, but I don't want to tell people that. Or yesterday, I ate a whole case full of donuts, and I don't want to tell people that. Yeah. Or. Well, um, we, yeah, we hide it. Like we use my fitness pal, but we make our diary private. So nobody can see what it is we're putting into our faces. Well, you can do and that. I'll, oh yeah. Oh, wow. You can make it public. So it was a hard thing for me. I knew that I was making progress with my addiction. Hmm. Um, and that I was removing shame from my life when I turned my fitness pal diary into a public thing. Anybody hmm. can look at what I'm eating. I'm not going to hide it anymore. And even if I eat three bags of potato chips and a case of donuts all at the same time and chase it with a gallon of wine, I'm still going to write it down and I'm going to make it public because me struggling is not a shameful thing. Struggle is not shameful. Absolutely. It's, we all do it. I did we it. We all do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, 
again, I know I might sound like a broken record on this podcast, and um, we have talked about some unbelievable things here today. I've got some great insight from your story, but we all do it (laughs) we all do it and there's nothing wrong with the struggle me nor any of my guests are not up here pontificating about what you need to do to be perfect to be this Mm -hmm. to be that to live your best life the whole point of this podcast is ordinary people who are trying to do extraordinary things through connecting with other people you know Mm -hmm. my old saying community is king but you need to hear this when me and Aaron are talking here now. We have made great strides in our journeys, but we still struggle all yeah. the time. All the time. And, you know, that's one of the things, too, that when I say that the the first step to, well, you said it yourself, the first step to getting better is owning your shit, knowing where you're at, accepting your reality. My reality is that I'm an addict and that I want to abuse pretty much anything that I enjoy and some things that I don't uh, for a multitude of reasons, emotional ones. I feel like I deserve it. I'm just pissed off. It's pee week. There's a thousand reasons why I would want to do it. Yeah. I am compelled and triggered to abuse things. The first thing that I had to do was to accept the fact that I am an addict and that my tendency is to take whatever it is that I'm doing and run as far as I can with it till I hit a wall because mm. that's the way that I am. That doesn't mean that it's a good thing. It just means that that's how I am. Yeah. Uh, because if you spend your life expecting that you're going to just stop being that way and you you're con- you will end up in a state of constant constant disappointment and frustration for your own compulsion. What's yeah. wrong with me? Why do I keep doing it? Well, yeah. it's because you're an addict. And I I hear that so much. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I fix this? It's because it's who you are. It's like a zebra trying to change his stripes into polka dots. You can't do it. You can't. You are striped. Just go with it. So I, so I, accepting- I guess forgiveness has a lot to do here. And grief. Mm. I have grief that this is how I am. I had to grieve it. I had to be pissed about it. I had to deny it. I had to be depressed about it for a while. And eventually the five stages of grief lead to acceptance, which is the last one. You accept this is how I am. This is what I have to work with. Mm. Um, the next step in that process is understanding that although this is my compulsion that I want to abuse things, um, I don't have to, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to want to do it. Yeah. I think that for a lot of women that I work with, we talk about compulsive overeating and binge behavior. A lot of women are sitting there waiting for the time that something in their head clicks and they just don't want to overeat anymore. Yeah. I will never not want to binge. I can tell you right now, I want to do it right now. Right right now. Right now, this very second. I'm tired. My neck hurts because I have a chiropractic appointment tomorrow, but I have to wait like 24 hours. Yeah. I'm drugged up on medication, some ibuprofen, I guess, drugged up on ibuprofen. (laughs) Um, But I can still tell that my head hurts and migraine. Um, so how, this, how are you, I, own, how are you owning totally all of that crazy. right now? 
Well, I, I give in to the reality that I want to binge very, very badly. Um, and then I work through coping mechanisms. I make sure that I have a healthy lunch in my stomach. Right before I talked to you, I was hogging down a lunch tortilla thing that had sausage and lettuce and low-fat mayonnaise and all that. Yeah. Healthy, good things, good for my body. Mm. I feed my body so that the compulsion of hunger does not fuel the emotional compulsion to overeat. Okay. So I, I eat. In order to avoid a binge, I eat. I make sure that my body is fed. Um, I also stay busy. So I've gotten up from my desk 50 times. I've got three projects working on my desk. I've got four programs open on my computer. Mm. Um, I have laundry that's not folded and some that's working and something working in the kitchen. Like I've, I, I kind of have ADHD, I guess, technically, <laughs> because there's all these things going on, but it's an active distraction yeah. because I know that if I slow down and walk through the kitchen with the intent that I'm looking for something to mm. occupy me, I'm going to find junk food. Yeah. Um, I also have in my mind uh, two weeks from this last weekend, I am going to buy a cheeseburger and I'm going to eat the whole thing. And I know that I'm going to indulge in a couple weeks. I have this time set aside and I already know what I'm going to eat. Uh, and I, I want to be able to enjoy it as the treat that it should be. And if I fill myself up on junk right now, I know I'm not going to enjoy that treat as well because yeah. I will have already eaten something that wasn't super great for me. Yeah, I mean, one, so, of, one of the greatest um, realizations for me, certainly having, you know, overeaten for so many years, was the realization that I am a instant gratification addict. Yeah. You know? We do. We want it. We want it right now, 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 now. And, you know, um, when you are compulsion, when you're a compulsive, when you're a behavioral addict and you're a compulsive, um, well, they call it obsessive compulsive disease mm. for a reason, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, mm. Once the fancy strikes us, the longer we try and hold off that compulsion, the stronger that it gets. Yeah. So in my case, it has helped me immensely to be able to admit that the compulsion is there. Hmm. But like me telling you right now, I really want to go in the other room and eat everything that I can find. Yeah. Saying that out loud helps. Hmm. Acknowledging that this is how I feel helps. Um, because I can't deal with it unless I admit that it's a problem. I can't deal with it unless I admit that it exists. Hmm. So we admit that it exists and then we deal with it. And yeah. and immediate gratification is a big part of that. If, not, and this is the way cognitive behavioral therapists will help um, obsessive compulsives through their behaviors. The idea is that when some compulsion comes up, uh, it triggers an anxiety response. So we'll get anxious, like I have to go do it, I have to go do it, I have to go do it. Yeah. 
And it might be like at a 10. My anxiety is at a 10. Yeah. The goal is to just sit in it and wait. Just wait. Go do something else and then come back. Take a deep breath and then come back. Go get some exercise. Go for a 10-minute walk. Wait until that anxiety level comes down to a 6, 7, or 8. And then take a deep breath. And then maybe at that point our our other coping mechanisms can yeah. come into play and that they're quite effective. Yeah. But we don't think like that. Like the last blog post that I wrote was about addiction and the idea is that you have to sit in it for a second and just be uncomfortable and that that's okay. And eventually the anxiety will come down and the compulsion will yeah. come down and then we can talk about it and we can think straight. But when that impulse comes, you're not thinking at all, no, really. No. And I just, I got to say, we need to take a deep breath right now, I think, because okay. we have, oh my God, we've touched on so many things. Again, I said this to you the last time we spoke, it was scratching the surface. Oh yeah, my goodness. It really so is. what I want to do right now is I got a couple of questions on the post earlier when I told people that we were going to be recording. Oh, okay. So I guess they're for the two of us, um, but Karen Fonseca asks how do you keep motivated it's a pretty broad one how do i keep motivated yeah like what you what what are you on like day 90 something of my fitness pal or something like that i think so i think you're right 92 i think it was 70 i think it was 70 something before i went on vacation and that was 10 days ago so yeah just yeah, about 90 nearly. yeah so how do you keep motivated um Oh, well, I will say this time I actually don't rely on any emotional motivation whatsoever to get it done. I just do it anyways. That's my answer it too. Is, yeah. That's totally because my answer. It's not about how you feel about it. Yeah. It's about just getting it done. Exactly. It's like balancing your checkbook. Yeah or doing a load of laundry. Hmm. If you're waiting to be super excited to do your laundry before you do it, you'd be naked most of the time. You just wouldn't do it. But when it comes to certain things, you have to make a decisive, intentional choice Yeah. that you're just going to get it done. Absolutely. It, and it is, once I removed the emotions from my ability to exercise on a daily basis it became easy yeah because it's not and that's what i was going to say is it's not about as soon as you can remove all the emotion then you know you're on to something because then it's not about anything except for the choice that you've made and karen i, I know you're probably screaming at your uh, your car radio <laughs> or your uh, your phone and saying okay guys that's fantastic but how the hell do i do that right and right i'm gonna will... I'm, I'm gonna say i'm gonna answer this part first and okay. what i did was i had to go through the detachment of the emotions by assessing myself every day i had to reflect on this it wasn't easy at the start it was very very difficult because it was my first thought was I'm too tired, I'm too sad, I'm too angry, I'm too frustrated, I have anxiety. And because, as Erin just said, I sat with the discomfort of that and did it anyway. As Susan Jeffers says, you know, I felt the fear and did it anyway. And then, as I meditated on that every single day, 
and blogged on my page, the Dan Kale Wellness Project, there was a time, and I think it was around February, so we're looking at about eight weeks, six weeks into it, that I didn't have to do that anymore because it, I did it every day. You successfully created a sustainable habit Yeah. at that point. Yeah, then it's not about anything except for just the routine of it, that you're just doing it. Mm. And I would say um, when we talked about 10 steps forward, however many steps back, when we talk about peeling the onion or peeling these layers back into yourself and that, that what others perceive as moving forward and falling backwards and failing, I can't even tell you, I probably could look it up, but it would take a long time, how many times I started my fitness pal and then quit Hmm. so many times sometimes I would last a few months sometimes Hmm. last a meal or a few days but making that start and stop and start and stop was all part of the process of figuring out why am I doing this? Why is this important? Is this important? Is it really relevant? Do I need to keep going? And I finally got to the point for myself where I said, Aaron, you're an addict. You need help. You need accountability and you need some way of keeping track of what you're doing so that it doesn't go off the rails. And for me, that's exactly what it is. Is create a sustainable habit that's devoid of emotion hmm. to make sure that I am staying on track. And then, Ka- Karen, when you do achieve what we've just described, you'll start getting emotions afterwards that are really mm-hmm. nice and a sense of pride and a sense of achievement. You can totally own those emotions. Just try to detach right. them from the fact that you need to, I don't know, go to the gym or go do some exercise, move, you know, if you can do that. Yes, because it's not the emotions that you're feeling when you're not doing it. We get like my fitness pal would make me feel ashamed because I would use it and then I would quit and I would feel this shroud of guilt around the program itself. Hmm. Um, But keep, You just, you have to find the thing that works for you and not make it about you at all. Yeah, exactly. It has nothing nothing to do with me. The stupid program is just a program. It's a tool. It has nothing to do with me. Hmm. So when you say sit in those positive emotions that you create for yourself afterwards, those have everything to do with me and I will take every single one of them. Mm. I will own all of that because Mm -hmm. I chose to do that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so we we had a ton of questions but we only have time for one more and this one comes from okay. my mother my beautiful mother oh. Marie Kyo hi ma'am um, she wants to know and this is another very broad one how do you relax and deal with stress um, you keep busy I I do I deal with stress by organizing my time in such a way that my downtime is also scheduled. Hmm. So once a certain, like at 5 p.m., all the electronics go off and I am 100% present with my family and I am not allowed to pick up any work between then and 8 a.m. the next morning. So my productivity has actually gone up because I've scheduled time to be down yeah. and 
I don't feel bad in that time because I know that I've scheduled the rest of my day equally well. Um, exercise helps. Mm. I also allow myself to take on personal projects regularly that I usually don't get paid for and that are somewhat self-serving. So uh, during the school year, I volunteer three or four hours a week at my kids' school in their classrooms. So I get to hang out with the kids and I love that. Mm -hmm. um, I have a couple sewing projects that I'm in the middle of. I have a couple art projects that I'm in the middle of. Um, and I set aside time to, to participate in those activities. I also schedule time to visit a friend locally, probably once every week or two. I have a few friends that I spend time with and I schedule time for that. Hmm. So really, I think in order to avoid stress, you just have to learn how to prioritize yourself. Yeah. You heard it here first, guys. You got to schedule your downtime. I mean, that yeah. was that was not going to be my answer, but it is part of my answer to how do I deal with stress and relax. Is I have Friday evenings are my time. You know, I mm -hmm. schedule that every week. And you know, I'm kind of lucky, and most of the people who'll be listening to this have a gaggle of kids, and you know, I I understand that I don't have those type of responsibilities yet, but the dynamic is still the same. You still got to schedule your own downtime. You do. Um, I will also say, in a less PG answer, sex helps. Mm -hmm. um, having some sort of physical, emotional, mental release. Having, and, and you know, we talked about how you have around you a support system of people. Yeah. I, I cannot express enough how important that is in dealing with stress. Because there are times, and I haven't actually realized this until just now as I'm saying it, but I am finally to the point in my life where when something comes up that's stressing me out, I have, I have a list of people that I can run through in my head and say which person is best suited to help me through the struggle. Yeah. And depending on the content of the struggle... The person that I choose, but I have somebody to help me with everything. Mm. I don't do anything. I, it sounds lame. I mean, the, the perfectionist pride part of me feels lame saying it. I don't do anything by myself anymore. Mm. I get help with everything. I have mentors and friends and kids that I go to and I say, I'm feeling really down. Can, you, can I get a hug? Yeah. Tell mommy that she's prettier. I'm not fixing you dinner. Not really. But, you know, <laughs> something like, you know, we have to fill, fill our own buckets back up regularly. And yeah, I can honestly say that that at this point in my life, my stress level is so low that I can't really. There are things that come up that concern me sometimes. But. As we build ourselves up and as we discover what we're actually capable of, I am confident nothing will happen in my life that I cannot handle mm. and I don't get stressed as much anymore. Right. And I, and this is obviously my mother who's asking this question. So it's kind of like a conflict of interest. <laughs> this answer. But mom, my answer to you to this question is quite similar to Aaron's schedule your downtime reach out to people 
community is king you've got to connect with more people and anybody who's listening that wants to know how to reduce their stress you have to practice deep breathing mm -hmm. it is physiologically proven mm -hmm. to reduce stress if yeah. you are somebody who has high anxiety stressed all the time i cannot recommend highly enough go on to the heart math h-e-a-r-t-m-a-t-h website and look at the gadget that they have on there because I bought it on the advice of my stress management coach in college and it has changed the way that I reduce physiologically my stress because when we mm. think about stress I mean a lot of people will be thinking you know the kids wouldn't get up for school the kids wouldn't eat their dinner um, I didn't get to the gym today actually stress is a physiological state where you are in the parasympathetic nervous system excuse me sorry you're in your sympathetic nervous system and to in order to get out of that you you need to deep breathe breathe deeply to get into your parasympathetic nervous system and that means you will physically be out of stress you know what i'm saying right yeah well it our our emotional state can affect our physical state we mm. can develop ulcers by being stressed out all the time mm. the reverse is also true that your physical state can affect your emotional state based on how you're breathing, standing up straight, yeah. putting your arms behind you instead of crossing them in front of you. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's reasons that they say body language is a big thing yeah. when you're getting to know people and meeting people. It changes. Your body will, your, your emotional state and your biophysical state will change based on your posture. Hmm. Your attitude is better. I tell my kids this all the time. I say, if you're super depressed or if you're super happy and then you lean forward and you put your chin to your chest and you make a sad face, how do you feel? Mm. And they say, bad. Mm. I say, okay, now when you're sad and you stand up straight and you laugh and you say, hey, everything's terrific. How do you feel? Yeah. Better. So absolutely, yes. And, yeah. I, and I would say too that um, to a more dealing with stress, I, I was pretty sure that I know that I've struggled with depression for most of my life and nothing in the world helped my depression more than owning my own reality. You can fight stress all the time. You can live a, a crappy life and fight stress. Um, or live a crappy life and be in denial of it and fight stress. Or you can say, hey, my life's crappy. I need help. And then you work on fixing your life so that you're not so stressed out about it. I mean, yeah. And that's where the magic happens. Yeah. And that's when that and, you know, as because as you were talking, I was thinking super good job listening, by the way, if I'm thinking while you're talking. But <laughs> while you're talking, I was thinking about, you know, um, what was it in my life that changed to reduce my stress the most dramatically? And it was changing my circumstances. Okay. You know, like there's people that talk about I'm in this job and it's super stressful and I, my boss is horrible and I'm super stressful. How do I deal with my boss? How do I deal with the stress? Yeah. I'm like, I can get a different job. Mm. Like, and I know that for some people that's an oversimplification and they're like, yeah, that's, I'm never going to do that. But really it all boils down to whether or not you accept the fact that the life that you're living right now is by your own choice. Mm. Cause even if it's crappy, but you're choosing to live it, it relieves a certain amount of stress and a feeling of powerless helplessness. Yeah. In which case, 
then I then my mindset has changed and I'm more resolved about dealing with something in a positive way mm. as opposed to being held down by circumstances that can't be controlled. Yeah. If that makes sense. It absolutely okay. does. And um, I was thinking when you were talking there, which is another example of terrible <laughs> listening. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a counselor and psychotherapist in training. I hope my lecturers are not listening to this right now. <laughs> or they listened up to about minute 70 or something. But um, what I didn't mention there was the most obvious thing for me this year, which is training, you know, exercise. Right. You guys, you got to do something every day. And I'm yeah. not I'm not talking about what I'm doing, you know, going and destroying your back fibers, you know, and destroying your chest fibers and taking protein so they'll grow. And I'm talking about 10 minute walk, just like Amber Mickelson said on, in episode three, get out and do a 10, 15 minute walk. Plan something mm. every day, do something for yourself, you know, because it is absolutely 110 percent changed my life forever. Right. Right. And, and it, you know, it's not just the exercise. It's the fact that you're putting yourself first and you're prioritizing your mental health yeah. and that you're doing something. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the the antidote for fear, shame, stress and anything else that ails you in life is action. Hmm. That if you go do something, it yeah. will change it changes everything. But crucially, you... crucially, do it again the next day. Yes. And, and, and then, then the next day after. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so listen, Erin, we, um, we have come to the end okay. of this week's episode. I'm so grateful again that you came on. Uh, oh, it's a pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, we dealt with some pretty, uh, pretty in-depth topics there today, and I hope the listeners did get a lot out of it. Before we finish, I would like to give a shout-out to Kate Wasserman. She came yeah. on the podcast and we gave you a shout out on our episode and thanked you for connecting us. She is the most wonderful person. She's she, delightful. She's now seven weeks out or eight weeks out of her brain surgery. Yeah. And I just want to tell you, Kate, that I've been following your progress since you had your uh, you had your appointment on Friday, I think it was, to um, you know get the all clear and you're just so inspiring to me. So thank you for coming on to the podcast. Um, yeah, I just want to give that shout out to Kate. So, Erin. Yes. Thank you as well for, oh, you're for inspiring Anytime. me, inspiring me every single day. Um, I'm gonna talk to you again in a month if that's okay. Yay! Uh, we'll, we'll we'll keep all this. We'll we'll keep this podcast train going. Perfect. Sound Wonderful. Good? Yes, it sounds great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye.